this country has a fantastic logistics and supply industry and I was on the BBC the other day uh, with a guy who was complaining that the, the pigs were going to be slaughtered he said the hundred thousand pigs are going to die and I was under the unhappy duty of pointing out to him that that is what happens to, to pigs in this country. This might well have been the moment when many rural voters turned their back on Boris Johnson for good. His flippant comments about the labour crisis in meat processing, which has seen tens of thousands of healthy pigs culled, never to enter the food chain, seemed to mark a watershed moment in the countryside's relationship with the Conservatives. Already disillusioned with a government which had failed to take on the farming sector's concerns about trade deals and changes to agricultural policy, many farmers reacted angrily to the Prime Minister's lack of understanding or empathy. This frustration was subsequently registered via the ballot box at the local elections on the 5th of May. For the parties which benefited, there were celebrations in leisure centres across the land as the votes were counted. The Conservatives, though, had a tough night, with the loss of more than 500 seats, many of which were in rural strongholds. But with probably two years left in power at Westminster before the next general election, is there anything the party can do to salvage its reputation in farming circles? And has the recent Queen's speech shown it has the ambition to turn things around and really deliver for the countryside? I'm Abby Kay, Head of News at Farmers Guardian, and I'm going to be speaking to two industry leaders to find out. Nick von Wessenholtz, I'm Director of Trade and Business Strategy at the NFU. I'm Mark Tufnell, and I'm President of the Country Land and Business Association. What do you think the local election results show about the way rural voters are feeling at the moment? Mark, I'll come to you first on that. Well, thanks, Abby. I think the results are very reflective of some polling that we've undertaken with a firm called Servation, which really shows that rural issues, we think, are being left out of this levelling up agenda and that voters are very frustrated with um, the government and government in particular, whether it's local government or central government. And Nick? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, you've got to be careful about um, extrapolating specific concerns about specific issues across, you know, such a wide range of different um, uh, localities in the local elections. And some people would have voted on national issues as they do. But local elections are, are interesting because you do often find and you can find local issues coming to the fore and people voting on those. And that's why you actually got quite a mixed set of results in, in, in some places. Um, and, I, and Mark's right. The, I think what is, what is becoming clear is that there is big concern in many rural areas that the government has rural voters at the forefront of their minds on national issues as well as, as local issues. Um, and I think, you know, you, you're beginning to see those concerns come up in by-elections as well uh, uh, in Parliament, but the local elections were, were a sort of further, further reflection on that. I mean, Abby, if I could, if I could add, add a little bit, a lot of focus has been put on the fact that um, the, the council in Westminster, for example, went Labour and obviously they lost Wandsworth as well. And the pundit analysis was that maybe the metropolitan areas showed much greater swing. And maybe, in fact, the, um, the rural areas showed l less impact. 
But there are changes that have happened down here where I live in the Cotswolds. So West Oxfordshire has, has changed and become, there's a link up between the Lib Dems and, and the Labour Party. So I think it is spreading out from the centre. So I think the rural disquiet and the rural frustration is playing through. Looking specifically at rural areas then, where do you think the main threat to the Conservatives is going to come from at the next general election? I mean, obviously, it, it depends area to area, but are they going to be squeezed from all angles? Nick? Well, if, if you look historically at the, um, the way that rural areas in particular voted, obviously the Labour Party have, have tended to struggle more in those areas, uh, and quite often it's a... Uh, it's a two-way fight between Conservatives and Liberal Democrats. And I suspect that will continue to be the case in places like the West Country, maybe some bits of uh, uh, East Anglia like Norfolk, um, some of the, the North West as well, um, where you know Liberal Democrats have historically held rural constituencies. But of course, you know, during the sort of new Labour era after 1997, uh, uh, Labour did hold more rural constituencies as well. Um, And if Labour are to uh, stage something of a resurgence um, at the next election, then there probably will be a handful of rural constituencies where uh, you might even get a a three-way fight. but you know, generally, I think historically, it is often the Liberal Democrats who are uh, who are stronger in some of those some of those areas. Mark, would you agree with that? Well, I think the Liberal Democrats have a good track record at by elections, um, and just recently, you've only got to look at uh, North Shropshire and then Chesham and Amersham. But I just wonder what impact they'll have at a general election. And I just rather think that, in fact, that the Conservatives may be their own worst enemy. Um, because if you put Partygate aside and you look at the other elements that government is supposed to be in charge of and you pick up particular items such as the lack of affordable housing, which was the key element that we picked up as part of our polling, there's there's little regard really that the government is is pushing in in this area, um, and it it came out very strongly in Cheshire and Amersham, and if you think that there may be, well be you know little little push from the centre and, and the Tories taking things for granted that could well be their own their own fall down and there's a piece in the Times today from uh, Jeremy Hunt which makes interesting reading. I mean, clearly, though, there are a lot of rural voters who are looking to abandon the Conservatives. Are they doing that because the other parties are offering a compelling alternative for the countryside? Or is it just a case of, well, just better anyone than the Conservatives? What do you think about that, Nick? Yeah, I mean, they, well, they, they, they often say that elections are, are lost rather than, than won. Um, and again, looking historically, I think you know that that is often the case where uh, parties have been in government for a long time. People uh, get used to them. People decide the time it's a time for change. 
Um, and uh, there has to be an aspect, a fairly strong aspect of that uh, at the moment, I would say, um, because you're judging people by their records and it's the party of government who has a record on which they can be judged, whereas the party of opposition are just uh, selling a prospectus. So um, I think a lot of people are looking at... Um, it's it's not always specific policies, although there there are a number of specific policies that will concern people. But they're looking for indications that uh, any party is on is on their side, understands their concerns, uh, and will kind of fight their corner um, uh, in in big policy decisions. And I think people are concerned at the moment that when push comes to shove, and difficult decisions and choices have to be made. Uh, agriculture, rural areas more broadly, uh, don't necessarily seem to be uh, winning in those in those difficult decisions. Um, and, you know, that is the decisions that the governing party are making. Of course, having done that, people will then want to look at uh, the alternatives and to make sure that they get a feeling from those opposition parties that they kind of share their their aspirations and um, that they will uh, they will back back them in those difficult decisions. So uh, it's not irrelevant how other parties are performing and what their prospectuses are, um, but clearly it's the government at the moment which has to stand by its record, and I think that may be causing it problems in in rural areas. What do you think, Matt? Do you think the opposition parties are? doing that job and making making rural voters feel that they can be trusted? Well, I think Nick has covered it really well um, in that elections tend to be lost by the ruling party. And so, I mean, we've, we've made sure we engage with all parties. Um, we've done that recently through work we've done on an all-party parliamentary group looking at the rural economy and making sure that all parties know and understand the type of rural policies that we think should be there right at the forefront of, of all of their agendas. Um, the, the Labour Party came forward at one stage with a rural policy review, which we um, were encouraged by, and the idea that there should be a rural minister in each department. But there doesn't appear to have been much progress on that. Although um, I am encouraged that um, we've been asked to go and speak to the Shadow DEFRA team uh, next week um, to run through um, our policies. And I think thinking about the Liberal Democrats, I mean, they are developing a, a rural policy at the moment. Um, I mean, certain elements of that that they've put out in advance, and I heard Tim Farron speaking about the other day, um, his proposal that the government should delay the implementation of the Agricultural Transition Plan um, is not something that we as an organisation um, are keen to support. We're, we're um, keen to see the agriculture transition move forward in the programme that the gov current government is suggesting, um, and we're keen to see how it, you know, how it develops. And we're working very closely with the current government. I think delay doesn't actually really help, and I just wonder whether. They, they don't seem to have come up with an alternative apart from saying delay. Yeah, I mean, as, as, the NFU's policy on that is, is slightly different, isn't it, Nick? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, we're, there's a difference, I think, between just delaying the whole uh, agricultural transition um, and suggesting that a delay in the phase-out 
um, uh, to help people with cash flow while at the same time continuing to develop the alternative policies that, that are going to be needed. For example, uh, ELMS, how that's going to operate, how the sustainable farming incentive will operate. So um, the, the concern is more, I think, that they're moving at different paces where we see a phase out and a reduction in, in direct payments and so you get cash flow issues. Um, but the alternatives that are coming on stream to help farmers and support them far more sustainably just aren't going to be in place in time. So, uh, you know, it's not kind of um, pulling the rug under the whole thing. It's just trying to kind of rebalance um, the, uh, uh, the incomes that farmers are going to get um, for um, uh, uh, for, the new, for the new systems, for the new schemes coming on, on, online. You both speak to your members all the time. Is there anything this government could do to salvage its reputation in farming circles? Because it seems to be, you know, quite an idea at the moment. Are there any key, key policies that would make a difference? Like taking on board the point you made, Nick, that it's not always about policies, but how could they demonstrate to farmers today that they're on their side? Um, Mark, I'll come to you first and then we'll go to Nick. No, thank you very much. I mean, I made reference earlier on to this all-party parliamentary group and, and we've took, taken soundings through the group of at least 50 individuals and organisations and one of the sections revolves around farming and aside from the elements within the productivity measures that the government have put uh, together and the advice that's being provided by the Future Farming Resilience Fund... I do think uh, on the trade side, an area that both the, the NFU and the CLA have pushed is the idea of getting additional agricultural attaches on every UK delegation where there's a free trade agreement being negotiated. I think is is very important to our uh, agricultural economy. Um, and uh, alongside that... Um, we too are calling for an extension to the seasonal workers pilot um, from the 30,000 up to the 80,000. And particularly as we come towards the picking season and as we approach harvest in the next few months, so many of our members will need the, the seasonal labour to help bring in the harvest, which is so vital to the, the food production and the food element within agriculture. And we, we mustn't forget, of course, that agriculture provides food. That's what our members are there doing. Um, and it's an element that needs to be pushed and pushed again um, with government and DEFRA. Nick, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, similar to, to Mark, of course, you know, we have the NFU as a, a range of you know, <laughs> a whole, a whole um, gamma of, of policies that, that we're constantly talking to government uh, uh, about uh, landing and, uh, and asking them to adopt. And Abby, you'll be uh, you know, well familiar with uh, uh, the manifestos organisations like the NFU pull together around elections times with a whole load of of, of important asks um, and you know some of those that Mark mentioned there are very important in particular I think um, to your question about what you know what's it going to take for this government to, to, to demonstrate that they're on farmers side I think um, you know getting food production um, front and center of of, uh, of policy rather than as a sort of a bit of an afterthought uh, and I think that will be to some degree, 
um, uh, uh, prompted by the current you know, awful events in, in, in Ukraine, but which are also uh, reminding us how fragile our, our food supply uh, is and um, therefore the importance of producing food in the UK. So I think, uh, you know, a, a, a something that pr provides um, government with a framework for supporting food production alongside its other priorities, for example, the environment, which it now has uh, targets through its Environment Act and uh, uh, um, uh, other legislation to, to make sure that food production isn't just an afterthought. But I, I also think it's, it's more broad. I touched on it earlier. It's about providing rural communities and farmers with that important signal that the government understands their concerns, understands um, the, the challenges they're often facing and will back them. And I don't think that's all, always been obvious. For example, if you look at some of the free trade agreements we signed with Australia and New Zealand, it, it's very obvious that the government could have still signed deals with those countries, might have taken a little bit longer to negotiate, um, but those countries would still have been delighted to sign trade deals with Britain and its uh, enormous 65 million people market, um, but which had some uh, slightly stronger or even quite a lot stronger uh, safeguards for beef and sheep farmers in, in particular. But they didn't. When push came to shove, uh, they just seem to have sort of um, decided with the easy win of a trade deal. Um, and, and that is exactly the sort of thing where the, the signals being given demonstrate that um, farmers are not at the forefront of, uh, uh, of, um, of the government's minds um, when, when it wouldn't be that difficult for them to, 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 be, uh, to be promoted a little bit uh, more strongly. Do you think the Queen's speech this week. Do you think it showed enough ambition on the part of government to turn things around in rural areas? Or is it just a case of this government's been in power for 12 years now and they're sort of running out of steam? Mark, what do you think? Well, Abby, I think it's still very early to tell as the details of the various legislation are still being released. But we're very disappointed to see no mention of a rural-specific policy to... Uh, level up or level out the countryside. You've got to look very, very carefully within the wording to have any hope of seeing any change to some of the issues that impact the countryside. Um, there is a glimmer of hope that the whole area of planning is going to uh, be help, helped by an improvement to the planning process itself. So often it's it, it sort of becomes encumbered by all the validation process that you have to go through. Um, we've been asking for permission in principle to help um, farmsteads become offices and to see proper vibrant rural growth. But the whole thing gets curtailed by this very, very archaic planning system. And there is, there is an element within the Queen's speech that perhaps offers a glimmer of hope that this will change. Um, there's good news um, from our association's point of view with regard to gene editing, because I do think this is an area that we as a, as a country can major on. And we've shown that our R&D element within agriculture is very strong. 
Um, and I think it's an area that we can see increased um, food production, food productivity. So that is a, is, is a positive. But otherwise, I'm not sure there's a huge amount within it, within the Queen's speech, that will help boost the uh, rural economy and the rural vote. So Nick Mark said that he would have liked to have seen more on levelling up rural areas. What would you have liked to see in the Queen's speech that wasn't in it? Yeah, um, I'd agree with with that point, and more generally, uh, a, a focus on on rural areas, the uh, rural areas in in um, in other bits of policy. Just the the fact that the challenges often facing rural areas are different to to urban areas where the vast majority of the population lives. I mean, it was, you know, it was a. There was a lot in the Queen's speech in terms of legislation. I think there's 37, 38 bills or something like that, some of which were, were a draft. But, I mean, there's a huge amount going on. That slightly makes me concerned that um, it's a sort of very scattergun approach, a whole load of different things the government is trying to do in just a year. You know, this is a year's legislative programme. Unlikely, as far as I can see, they'll get all of those bills through anyway. It's an awful lot. And, and it doesn't give one the impression of... Uh, you know, kind of confident and coherent legislative program. Uh, having said that, um, there are, you know, there were bills in there which uh, which are interesting and we'd welcome. Not least, as Mark's just touched on the gene editing um, legislation, uh, and if you long. Uh, supported uh, new technologies in plant breeding and other breeding, uh, which um, you know, can have lots of benefits. They're not a silver bullet, but but we could see more sustainable varieties coming on the on the market, which require less uh, pesticides. Might uh, be uh, more suitable to uh, the challenges of climate change, etc. So. Uh, you know that is a good uh, a good signal, uh, and I think um, we'd be pleased with that. But um, yeah, it's a it was a bit of a, a sort of curate's egg of a Queen's speech, I think, and there was a lot um, there was a lot, <laughs> a lot in there. Um, I just want to touch on the food strategy white paper. Um, it's supposed to be published about the around about the first two weeks of June, I think. I'm hearing from some people that the government is saying it's going to be quite a short, high-level document. Does that chime with what you know about it, Mark? Well, I've talked uh, with George Eustace about this and I've pressed him to to come up with a, an earlier food strategy. But I think, I think you're right. The indications we've had is it's looking more like early June, um, so in the next three, three or so weeks. Um, I don't necessarily know that it will be short uh, or high level. I'd heard through our sources that the whole strategy has been rewritten um, now that we've in this Ukrainian crisis um, and that the government has recognised as an issue over very high fertiliser prices, very high diesel fuel prices, um, and that the whole issue of food security um, has quite sensibly come round again. And when I met with um, the Secretary of State, I, I said, you know, you must link this food strategy paper with the food security paper that you published just before Christmas, uh, and that you do need to draw it together. And by bringing this out, you must bring and show confidence to the sector the farming sector, that the government is interested in food. 
mean, it's quite remarkable that food security paper didn't even mention war or conflict, and that was at a time when the Russians had a bunch of tanks stationed on the border of Ukraine, so that's quite quite amazing to me, really. I mean, what do you think it's going to be an in-depth document then, Nick? Uh, I, I don't know, to be totally honest with you. Uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, I think, uh, as Mark said, th- things have obviously, things are very fast moving and, and have changed a little bit. The outlook uh, today on issues like food security, the importance of domestic food production are, are probably different from the government's perspective, if not ours, than they were uh, certainly 12 months ago, if not six months ago. So things can move quickly. Uh, and you would hope that those, therefore, are addressed properly in uh, in a strategy. Um, and, you know, it, it is an opportunity um, for government to demonstrate that it does see a domestic capacity to produce food as critical, as crucial. Um, you know, we have specific targets on environment and biodiversity and things, things like that contained in legislation, um, but we don't have any sort of targets uh, around uh, the amount of food we produce. Now, I'm not suggesting we go after autarky or we want to become totally self-sufficient in food, um, but we should have some sort of mechanism to measure how we're doing uh, and to make sure that policies across the board, because there are all sorts of different policy areas covered by different Whitehall departments that have an impact on farming and food production in the UK, we should make sure that policies are designed at the very least not to impact adversely on our ability to produce food and to provide incentives to produce more foods more sustainably uh, if, if needed. So I think there's a real opportunity now for government to embed a sort of um, food security in, in government policy more, even to, you know, have some kind of food proofing of, of legislation and policy uh, in the future. So hopefully some of these ideas will, will begin to see the light of day a little bit more. Do you, how likely do you think it's going to be, though, that this document will have that buy-in from other departments? Because... Traditionally, these kind of things have usually been defer-owned and then sort of sat on a shelf somewhere gathering dust. Do you think this time it's going to be different? Um, who knows? <laughs> um, depends on what side of bed you've got out of. Um, I mean, to the sceptic says, well, no. And, and we know what Whitehall turf walls are like and um, it may be a challenge to try and get other Whitehall departments to uh, to take up the cudgel, as it were, on food production and food security. Um, I mean, there have been cross-government uh, food strategies and food plans in the past. Um, you know, it was the last Labour government um, in, its, in its sort of dying days produced Food 2030, which was a cross-government food strategy. Uh, that sort of uh, limped on for a little bit in the early Cameron years and, and eventually kind of withered. Of course, that's one of the problems with policy generally. Uh, it tends to be short term and uh, tends to live or die uh, alongside governments. Um, one of the challenges of this food plan, whatever it looks looks like, will be to give it some longevity. And that, that's why I sort of pointed to those long term environmental targets which uh, will survive governments because they have been given a long-term uh, lifetime uh, and it's the sort of thing we need to to do is to embed um, processes 
in policy making so that uh, the, the, the waxing and waning of political fortunes of political parties uh, doesn't um, have a, a, a fatal impact on, on any moves in the right direction. So you've both mentioned maybe one priority for what you think needs to be in that document. Do you have any other top priorities, things that absolutely must be in there? Well, Abby, I, I think that a way to bring about this cross-departmental working and make this project come to life is if you can actually change the habit of the consumer. Um, and you can look at seasonality and make people understand that there are growing seasons uh, and that they can't eat strawberries all year round, as an, as an example, uh, and that maybe, you know, we're not going to be self-sufficient in avocados as a country. And if you can involve the, the Department of Health, the Department of um, Defence in procuring their food from Britain, that would be a very good start. That would be a change of habit in, in the consumer, taking government as the consumer, um, and putting support to farmers to help with the technology to cope with changing seasons and help with the productivity. You could actually end up with a, a, a rather more enriched food strategy and a more enriched food diet. And if you think of what's happening in environmental land management and the proposals for agroforestry, you could have uh, cob nuts uh, and top fruits such as apples grown within an overall ordinary farming system supported through government payments, and you actually end up increasing the amount of fruit and nut within people's diets, and you're not making a huge land use change, you're not making a huge uh, impact on the countryside, and... In fact, you're not making a, a, a well a hugely significant change to uh, the, the the methods of production that we have in this country. It's something that we can do and we can be self sufficient in. So you're both lobbyists. How seriously are you taken by other government departments outside of Defra? I mean, I think maybe you've had a bit of trouble getting to meet the Home Secretary, Nick, at the NFU. Um, no, we've we've met the Home Secretary because she's got uh, quite a farming constituency, and uh, we've um, we've we've met her on a few occasions. But I think when um, um, you know the, the, you're you're probably referring there to some of the specific issues on uh, seasonal labour and labour more generally. And yeah, I mean, I don't think it's any um, surprise that uh, those conversations have been difficult. Um, but I mean, I would. I mean, I think. Actually, we've got pretty good um, levels of engagement are across Whitehall, uh, including the Home Office, including Department for International Trade um, and Treasury. Um, but it is true also to say that you know we have the institutional challenge of the fact that DEFRA is our sponsoring department um, and. You know, despite the announcement today that uh, there's an expectation to, to cut back um, civil service numbers, actually the civil service is working at fairly tight capacity, I would say, already. Uh, they've got a lot, uh, a lot on their plates and a lot to do right across the board. Um, and so there's only so much bandwidth. 
and um, it therefore isn't surprising that um, the large amount of our engagement is with, with our sponsoring department, um, DEFRA. But where there are issues which fall under other departments, like, for example, Labour in the Home Office, like uh, trade policy in the Department for International Trade, uh, you know, even things like rural broadband with DC DCMS and um, uh, rural uh, funding through uh, the Department for Leveling Up, you know, all of those areas fall outside DEFRA, even if DEFRA have, have an interest. Um, and yeah, I, I would say that, that actually levels of engagement are certainly with officials, and those are often the important uh, areas because that's where um, the detail of policy is worked out, are, um, you know, as, as um, well, they keep us all busy, let's say that. So we have a broad membership base, uh, which requires us to work closely with numerous government departments, although obviously DEFRA is our main sponsoring department. But we do have our, local, our recent report is being taken seriously, and I met last week with the head of policy in number 10, Andrew Griffith, and I know that the report has been seen by the Prime Minister, and to that effect, our policies are being taken seriously. That's it for this week's Over the Farm Gate. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review it on your preferred platform so we can help attract new listeners. And don't forget to pick up a copy of this week's Farmer's Guardian, where you can read about a new study which aims to find out how much of a threat cultured meat poses to livestock farmers and why the Trade and Agriculture Commission is worried it won't be able to properly scrutinise the trans-Pacific deal ministers are keen to sign up to. Until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening. <laughs>